Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. A father is dedicated to working toward turning his son's disappearance into a criminal investigation. This is Method and Madness, Missing, Daniel Robinson. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and madness. Addiction, noun, the fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. An overwhelming compulsion. As a species, we have a fascination with wanting to escape the prisons of our lives. To feel like we can dance with these toxic substances as a way to feel something different and new. We think we're always going to come away unscathed. We never expect to find ourselves addicted. This series will explore the need to escape our realities, the history of our fascination with the illicit, and to share the stories of those who have come away from the battle, war-torn and battered, but alive. Welcome to Addicted. A Jury Room Production. If you or a loved one have been struggling with addiction, or have in the past, and would like to share your story, please feel free to reach out to me via social media or through email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com. Coming soon to wherever you listen to this podcast. How is urgency measured by law enforcement? At what point does law enforcement decide someone is worth finding? If an adult goes missing in a car, are they less worthy of a search than, say, if they were last seen hiking? Does gender play a role? If a woman goes missing while hiking, will law enforcement put forth resources to find her in those crucial first 24 to 48 hours? What if a woman, let's say a 50-year-old professional, went missing in the desert in her car. Would that ignite urgency? What if it was a black male that went missing in his car in the desert? I know what you're thinking. There should be urgency in any of these situations. If a human is in danger and their family needs to plead with law enforcement to get help, then what kind of society are we living in? When is it decided that someone's life is worth the time? Who gets to decide that? Today we're talking about Daniel Robinson, a man who went missing in Buckeye, Arizona in June of 2021. While the case has gotten more attention in recent months, at first, to the family's dismay, it seemed that news outlets were not showing any interest in the missing man and law enforcement were refusing to put forth adequate, rescue efforts. Before we dive in, let me just say this is an open case. 
It is not solved, and Daniel has not been found as of this recording. I decided to release this as a bonus to the usual week's show to raise awareness to this case. In this episode, you'll hear from Daniel's father, David, who I sat down with in February of 2022 over Zoom. I wanted to give him a platform to talk about any updates in the case, what help he and his family need in locating his son, and I wanted to hear from him what he thinks has gone wrong with law enforcement's participation in this case. David Robinson has been working tirelessly to get answers and to find his son. My heart goes out to him and his family. They've launched their own investigation, which they're hoping will turn into a happy reunion. Let's dive into all the facts. The day Daniel went missing, what happened on that day, what's happened since, and what events led up to the day Daniel disappeared in the Arizona desert. Daniel Robinson is a black male with black hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 24 years old and is 25 as of this recording. He works as a geologist, and his residence is Tempe, Arizona. He's originally from Columbia, South Carolina, and had only been living in Arizona for about a year. He went missing in the desert in Buckeye, Arizona, on Wednesday, June 23, 2021. He was last seen by a coworker a little after nine that morning. Daniel loves the outdoors, and that's evident by the photos of him smiling in the desert. He was born with one hand and is missing his right hand and part of his arm right below the elbow. Here is his father, David, describing to me how nothing held Daniel back. Um, you know, because Daniel's born with one hand. Uh, a lot of times, you know, I, I miss saying that because he lived his life where, you know, knowing him, he won't even pay attention to it. Uh, but he's been, uh, you know, born without one hand. And uh, ever since childhood, he's uh, um, mentally um, uh, challenges everything. His siblings, whether it's academically to down to playing video games, he he challenges everything. Uh, you know, you say, some people look at him and say he can't do this or can't do that. Daniel shows the opposite, you know, saying that he's taught himself how to play a French horn, trumpet, you know, he could play the uh, trombone, um, you know, he played a little bit of football, he tried to lift some weights. David goes on to describe his son as free-spirited, a founder of a fraternity at his college in Charleston, that he was very friendly and had a lot of friends, it just came easily for him. And he's adventurous and loves to travel. While in college, Daniel took a class in geology and fell in love. It was his passion, and that passion took him from his home state of South Carolina out to Arizona, where he got a job after college with a company called Matrix Groundwater. Most workdays, Daniel would report to a job site. As a hydrogeologist, he wouldn't always be required to check in at the office, but to a location where he'd meet with a representative from a well drilling company and Daniel would measure water levels, etc. On the morning of June 23, 2021, Daniel stopped at a Shell gas station around 7 a.m. and then reported to a job site on Verido Way in Buckeye. These movements are confirmed by cell phone information and credit card charges, 
However, not much is known about Daniel's time spent at that first job site. And, to this day, his father is still trying to get more information on what, if anything, had occurred there. Daniel then left that first job site and drove to a second job site. This one was located about one mile west of North Sun Valley Parkway and about 2,000 feet north of West Cactus Road. The last known person to see Daniel was a man he met at the second job site, Ken. They met that morning at 9 a.m. and chatted for about 15 minutes. According to Ken, this was the first time he'd met Daniel, and he told police later that Daniel had been acting strangely. He was allegedly saying things that didn't make sense, like asking Ken if he wanted to go rest, and if he wanted to go home to Phoenix to rest. He also said Daniel was staring off into the distance, and that he then abruptly got into his car, a blue-gray 2017 Jeep Renegade, gave Ken a wave, and drove off at about 9.15 a.m. From the job site, Daniel drove southwest toward the remote area of the desert instead of heading up the dirt road toward the main drag. After he drove off, nobody heard from Daniel ever again. He didn't report back to work, and he didn't contact anyone. Now, according to the police report, Ken reached out to his project manager to let him know that Daniel had been acting strangely and that he'd just driven off. Ken says he went to look for Daniel himself and that he drove in the direction that he saw him go. He says he saw his tire tracks headed in the direction leading deeper into the desert. There had been some rain that morning, so some of the tracks had washed away. Ken's attempts to locate Daniel or his car were fruitless. The weather that day was typical of summer in Arizona. The high was 91 degrees around noon, and without shade coverage, it would have been pretty unbearable to spend any significant time in the desert. After disappearing, and based on Ken's description of Daniel's odd behavior, one of Daniel's friends-slash-co-workers went to the home of Daniel's sister, Devisha, who lives in Phoenix, not far from Daniel's home in Tempe. Davisha hadn't seen or heard from her brother, and so she immediately called her father, David, who lived in South Carolina. David told her to go to Daniel's apartment and see if his car was there. They both started calling Daniel's friends to see if anyone had spoken to him, and they were calling Daniel's cell phone and not getting any answer. By this time, six hours had gone by, and nobody had heard from Daniel, which, according to his dad, was out of character. Daniel was close with his family and communicated with his siblings and parents often. It was simply not like him to take off and not let someone know. And he certainly wouldn't have just walked away from work without telling someone. David Robinson told me that initially, he hesitated to call the police. He had reservations about them going to a black man's home unannounced. But ultimately, he did call the Tempe Police Department and asked them to do a welfare check. He was told to contact the Buckeye Police Department since the area where Daniel disappeared was in their jurisdiction. But before David could report his son missing, he was told he had to wait 
an additional three hours to file the report, that a report could not be filed until that twelfth hour. The Buckeye police called Daniel's cell phone, but it went straight to voicemail. They did not leave a message. They were in contact with his father, David, and asked if there was anywhere Daniel could have been, anywhere he could have driven off to or people he'd be with. David couldn't think of anywhere he'd have gone. The report says police officers asked David if Daniel had any medical issues or known mental health problems, to which his father said no. Now, the following information is also according to that report, but it's important to note that Daniel's father says this is not true, that his son had been acting a little odd in the past few weeks. David says he never said that. He did tell police that Daniel had been talking about a woman and was asking his dad about love and when you know you're in love. But this was normal for the father and son who spoke to each other a couple of times a week, often for hours at a time. Basically, David says there was nothing odd that he could tell that was going on with his son. When asked if Daniel had ever talked about harming himself or anyone else, David replied that he'd never heard anything like that. And as for drugs, the only thing his dad was aware of was occasional marijuana use. While on the phone with David, police asked him to look at Daniel's social media accounts for any clues to his whereabouts, and when he did, it appeared that all of his photos on Instagram had been wiped clean. It's unknown why. The police told David they were going to go out into the desert to do a ground search for his son, and they entered him into the NCIC as a missing person. Police also spoke with Davisha, Daniel's sister, who echoed much of what her father had said. She had no idea where her brother could be and was unaware of any medical issues. According to the police report, Davisha, too, was aware of a woman in Daniel's life, a woman named Caitlin, who, according to Daniel, had recommended a podcast to him. It's unknown what podcast that was, but it had apparently changed the way Daniel looked at life. Viewing the world with a positive energy, Davisha was under the impression that Daniel was in a relationship with this woman, Caitlin. Upon speaking with the last person to have seen Daniel, Ken, police confirmed the conversation the two had had at the job site, and Ken reiterated that Daniel had been saying things unrelated to work, that he asked Ken if he wanted to go home and rest before waving and driving off. Ken said, it didn't seem that Daniel was hallucinating. Daniel's father has spoken with Ken. He was anxious to hear from the last person that was known to be in contact with his son. And David has said the timeline provided is questionable and that the story has changed. But nothing in that sense is reflected in the police report. According to David Robinson, it seems that the police report is written in a way to focus on a certain narrative, and to dismiss anything that could indicate criminal activity. So next, the police were able to locate the woman that Daniel had been speaking with, Caitlin, and she said she didn't know where Daniel was. She last heard from him via text on June 22nd, the day before he had gone missing. Again, according to the Buckeye police report, 
Caitlin told the police that the two were not in a relationship and that she'd only just met him on June 12th, when Daniel had made a delivery to her home while he was working a part-time shift with Instacart. Caitlin and her friend invited Daniel in to hang out, something that in hindsight she said she shouldn't have done since he was a stranger, but that he seemed nice and harmless. She and Daniel exchanged numbers, and the next day, Sunday, June 13th, Caitlin texted Daniel with a link to a podcast she wanted him to listen to. A few days later, Daniel texted her saying he'd left something behind at her home by accident. It was a canopy that had been in his car. Caitlin was out of town but responded that he could come by her house anytime to pick it up. On June 16th, Caitlin observed Daniel on camera outside of her home. She texted him and said she wasn't there, but that she'd make arrangements for him to come and pick up the canopy. From there, Caitlin said she started receiving texts from Daniel, like heart emojis and messages like, I love you, which she found concerning because according to her, she hadn't done anything to indicate a romantic interest in him. Daniel texted Caitlin again, telling her he was outside of her home. She made it clear that his showing up unannounced was making her uncomfortable, and she did not want to talk to him anymore. The last she heard from him was the day before he went missing when he texted her this, The world can get better, but I'll have to take all the time I can, or we can, whatever to name it. I'll either see you again or never see you again. It's unknown what Daniel meant by this, but Daniel's dad has reiterated that his son didn't seem depressed at all in the days before he disappeared. Police also spoke with other friends of Daniel's who said he hadn't been acting or saying anything odd and he hadn't expressed any thoughts of suicide, but that he'd apparently mentioned feeling depressed a few days before he went missing. Other people who knew Daniel or had come in contact with him in the days leading up to his disappearance were interviewed by Buckeye police, including an employee at a Waffle House, where Daniel dined the day before he went missing. The server there recalled Daniel and told police he had appeared, quote, skittish and didn't really talk to her. Another co-worker of Daniel's observed that he'd been acting a little differently in the days leading up to June 23rd, quieter and, quote, dry. Daniel had apparently mentioned that there was a girl in his life, but that she didn't know he existed. So that's what people who know Daniel have been saying. Let's talk about the search. The morning after Daniel's disappearance, police called David and said they were going to send a helicopter out to the area he was last seen. However, as that officer was changing shifts, his supervisor, pulled back on the authorization of the flight. Their reasoning was that Daniel was a grown man who could make his own decision to up and leave if he wanted to. Upon hearing that news, David Robinson packed his car and began making the trip from South Carolina to Arizona. After teaming up with his daughter, who was the only other family member living in Arizona, the two set out to get some answers from law enforcement, but ultimately... David Robinson decided to launch his own investigation to find his son. A devoted father as well as an army veteran who's been to Afghanistan twice and knows desert terrain, he's not stopped searching since. 
Now, additionally, on the day of the 24th, Tempe police went to Daniel's home and attempted to gain access but were unable to. They didn't see his car, and looking in his apartment windows, they were able to see about 80% of his living space. The police report indicates it didn't look like anyone was home. But knowing that this man was now missing for 24 hours and that his family were adamant he didn't just up and leave, Daniel's home was not searched, it was not viewed as a potential crime scene, nothing. On the 25th, Daniel's aunt contacted the Buckeye Police Department and expressed her concern about her nephew. And after that conversation, a helicopter search was authorized, along with ground searches. But neither Daniel nor his car were located. If you're unfamiliar with this area of Buckeye, Arizona, it's very rural. The terrain can be dangerous depending on where exactly you are. There are mountain lions and rattlesnakes, and it's a lot of ground to cover. Now, Daniel's father has doubts that this helicopter search ever took place. Once he arrived in Phoenix, he set himself up in a hotel and has been in Arizona since, making sure that the search for Daniel continues. Simply, he doesn't trust law enforcement. He sees things in the police report that don't add up with what he as an eyewitness has seen. He told me that the police report indicates that during one search, there were two helicopters in the air. They said they had two aircraft. That's a lie. I recorded the whole thing. I have recording. Um, I, I make I make recordings. I have I keep my documents. I, I record every message that I talk to these officers and everything. That's why I don't really read the report. On July 19th, 26 days after Daniel was last seen at the job site, his Jeep Renegade was found by a rancher two and a half to three miles southwest of the well site in a 20-foot ravine. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash methodandmadness. That's betterhelp.com slash methodandmadness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. I asked David if the police had searched that area where the Jeep was inevitably found. He heard different versions of the story. One that there was a helicopter search and from a witness who was out in the area that they never once saw a helicopter. He spoke with the rancher, who says the Jeep was definitely not in that ravine in the days leading up to finding it. The reason the rancher knew this was because he'd been moving his cattle through that area, including feeding them in the ravine, and that he would have seen the car. 
And that is the struggle that David Robinson has had since the day he learned his son went missing. That the searches aren't thorough, that there are mixed messages from law enforcement, and even according to him, blatant lies. The rancher had called the police when he found the Jeep, and they reported to the ravine to recover the vehicle. The car was overturned, laying on its passenger side facing northwest with significant damage to the front. The sunroof was kicked out. They speculated that Daniel may have exited the car through the sunroof. All of the airbags in the car had deployed. According to police, there were no signs of Daniel and no blood or indication of foul play. All of his clothing was found, along with his wallet and cell phone, but no Daniel. Were Daniel's clothes found inside of the car or outside of it? Well, his clothing, um, if you see right here, the orange little marker there, and then you see some blue. Um, his clothes was three feet away from the vehicle, um, and they, that safety vest, the orange thing is a safety vest, was another foot away from the clothing. They was all in the pile. The clothing was in the pile, uh, in his clothing. Uh, of course, his pants was pulled inside out, um, and the shirt. Um, but the, um, uh, the, the pants pocket, supposedly, what Buckeye tell me, um, include his wallet, his wallet is inside his uh, pants pocket, uh, but no money in the wallet, um, and his, uh, his his keys, I believe, and the cell phone, and um, his person, his uh, work computer was inside the vehicle. Um, so those things were inside the vehicle, but the, the clothing and the wallet was on the outside. At this point, I confirmed with David that it was all of Daniel's clothing, socks, underwear, etc. I also asked him what the police were saying had most likely happened. They told me that, you know, their theory is still the same. My son, um, you know, wrecked his own vehicle. Uh, he crawled out there, he stripped his clothes off, and he just disappeared. Um, you know, they didn't give me any official thing saying that, you know, this is what we stand by, but their investigation and their report and everything does this has the same theme. Uh, thing they don't want to go farther. We ask them to uh, look at look at it a possible criminal activity. They um, don't want to move from that. Um, they're refusing to do that. Um, call it anything but a simple missing person. As uh, long as they can keep it as a missing person, they really don't have to investigate. After the car was located, it was towed to the Buckeye Police Department, and David Robinson was called in, but not until the next day, which baffled him. Why had they waited? When he asked why he wasn't contacted immediately. Buckeye police told him they didn't want to disturb his sleep. So they had David come down to the station for a briefing, and he was stunned at the sight of his son's car and the condition it was in from the crash. He told me that for some reason, the police were encouraging him to touch the car, look inside, etc. And David said he refused to touch anything. Crash data showed the car was going about 30 miles per hour when it crashed. The time and date were not available. They then told David that he had three days to get the vehicle off of police property. From there, David had a meeting with the chief of police and started getting answers on what the police hadn't done, like forensic testing on the car. They told David the reason was that there was no blood in the vehicle, so no testing was done, and by the time David knew the car was found, it had already been towed. He received a picture of the Jeep Renegade overturned on its side in the desert. In the photo, you can see some clothing nearby and the safety vest that Daniel was wearing at the job site. 
Police have said they can't launch a criminal investigation because there is no evidence a crime took place. But David Robinson knows his son and knows he wouldn't just take off in the middle of the desert without his clothes, without his phone. David has been told by police that sometimes people up and leave, changing their lives without telling anyone. They provided an example. That's when he gave me the story about his theory. Well, he gave me a theory about this first, about he felt that my son had um, uh, wrecked his car. Uh, he didn't have, he didn't suffer any injuries because there was no blood in the vehicle. But at the same time said he, he may have suffered a severe brain injury. And uh, um, he crawled out the sunroof. Um, you know, we got to, he explained to me when you have a brain injury, you get hot. And it is funny because I have a brain injury from Afghanistan. I ain't never did this. But he told me that when you have a brain injury, uh, you get feel like you're hot and you you know, strip your clothes off and take your clothes off. And uh, uh, and maybe that's what he did. And he got hot and he went up um, uh, under some tree or something to cool off, some, some similar thing like that. But once we got to that compound, he stopped me and said, hey, Mr. Robinson, um, I've seen this before. He said he gave me a story about some lady who uh, the family thought she was missing. Turned out she went to some place to become a nun or something out of other. He said, I'm not really saying that about your son, but maybe he, uh, uh, you know, just want to be away from you guys. And he decided to go uh, join the monastery to become a monk. You know, he said this to me before he showed me the vehicle. None of this rang true to David Robinson. That maybe Daniel decided to run off and join a monastery? Naked? That he suffered a brain injury despite having no blood in the car? And if he had crashed his Jeep, why wouldn't he use his cell phone and call someone for help? David hired a private investigator who specializes in vehicle crash reconstruction. And one of the findings was that after the car's airbags had been deployed, there was an additional 11 miles put on the Jeep. How could that be? Was somebody staging the scene in a sense? According to the investigator, that's what it looked like a staged crash. The police said they contacted Jeep and were told that's just something that happens sometimes, that there have been discrepancies between crash data and odometers, but another finding, that someone tried to start the car 46 times after the crash, that couldn't be explained by Jeep. But there are theories that it could have been done by whoever was driving the car when it crashed, attempted to start it afterward, or that these were attempts made by the tow truck driver. Another odd piece of this puzzle is that Daniel's Jeep had red transfer paint on it, looking like he had come into contact with something like a red car, and this could not be explained. David understands that it may seem like he's biased since this is his son after all. He's going to have bias. But what he can't understand is how anyone can look at the photo of Daniel's car overturned in the desert with the amount of damage it has, and not think it looks suspicious. David's private investigator collected evidence, and upon doing the crash investigation, provided all of the info to the Buckeye Police Department that would show there were signs of criminal activity. There was red transfer paint on Daniel's Jeep, indicating it may have come in contact with something. It looked like the car was deliberately planted there and staged to look like a crash. It looked like the car had actually been in more than one crash that day. And David got a recorded statement from the rancher who found the car, stating that the days leading up to finding it, it hadn't been there. He sent the police all of the information, and once they got it, David said they stopped communicating with him. <laughs> 
The PI informed the Buckeye police that near the roadway that leads from the job site to the Sun Valley Parkway, a sock had been found hanging from a tree. The sock was faded by the sun as if it had been out in the desert for some time, and it matched one of the socks that had been found outside of Daniel's car, as well as the socks found in his drawer at his home. Now, what's unclear here is how there was an additional sock of Daniel's found near the site. The police report indicates that two socks were found near the crashed Jeep. Those two socks were apparently added to the evidence bag with the rest of Daniel's belongings and handed over to his father. But David says he turned over the evidence bag to the PI and never looked inside it himself. So it's unclear if this was a third sock that was found or if only one sock was found near the crashed car and this was its match. And if it was its match, how did it end up back near the job site? This evidence goes against the police narrative that Daniel made the choice to drive off into the desert. What also goes against that narrative is the PI's findings that the crash seemed staged. It was three months after Daniel went missing that the public really began to show an interest in this case. At the time, Gabby Petito had made national news, and Daniel's family were trying to understand why their search wasn't getting the same kind of attention. As of this recording, David Robinson is still actively searching for his son. Hundreds of volunteers have shown up just to join in the search. During one of these searches, on July 31st, a human skull was discovered. It was identified as belonging to another missing person, not Daniel. And while that discovery helped another family to find a missing loved one, it only highlighted to David Robinson how a volunteer search is coming up with more than the work done by law enforcement. The volunteers have also discovered other clothing not related to Daniel. David knows that Daniel would never purposely up and leave, that he'd never hurt his family like that. And while it's important to shed light on who Daniel interacted with in those days leading up to the disappearance, David also wants people to know that none of that should distract from the very important task at hand, finding Daniel. David, at this time, I'd like to give you the opportunity to address the listeners. How can people help? Yes, thank you so much. Uh, well, you know, as you know, I've been doing this since uh, uh, June the 26th when I started my searches. Oh, well, I came out here, I'm sorry. I stopped looking for my son. I since then started searches. And, um, you know, um, the searches have been going on forever. I didn't realize how, how expensive um, um, Arizona is, first of all. Uh, second of all, just being here this long is only because of people who donate and, uh, uh, you know, give their time, their efforts. Um, so I've been out here this long, um, uh, been able to conduct searches every week, um, supply all the uh, equipment that we need uh, from drones to whatever, um, you know, uh, ATVs, uh, UTVs, whatever. Um, all the travel that we had to do to go follow leads when I had my investigator, my first investigator with me, um, doing a lot of travels. Um, um, peasant getting flyers made and I mean, just a whole nine yard, getting these posters like this made for the fences and things like that and getting billboards put up all around. Phoenix, all that comes from volunteers, uh, volunteer money. And also, of course, my money is also, but money put together. I won't be able to do it alone, in other words. So one thing that people can help me is continue to donate. Um, the funding is going in the right places. Um, it's going to keep me here. 
um, in Arizona and keep me um, in the fight to find my son. One of the biggest things that I need now is I cut my searches back a little bit uh, because of funding. Uh, Funding kind of dried up since November. In addition to funding searches, David is putting funds towards getting forensic work done. At this point in our conversation, David said he was trying to be careful with his words. It's clear that he believes there are suspicious circumstances surrounding his son going missing, and he's currently working with his PI to change this from a missing person to a criminal investigation. He didn't want to tell me what he thinks happened, but it sounds like more information is going to come to light soon. There are flyers that can be posted around cities, put on cars, and billboards to be funded. David Robinson says this regarding the reasoning for flyers. Um, At this point, you can imagine I'm not looking for my son walking around the desert with his clothes off, uh, survived for uh, eight months yesterday now, um, alive. And I had to be honest with that. So, you know, I'm hoping my son escaped that desert alive and I'm looking for him out there. That's what the flyers are for. According to a CNN report, in 2020, over 543,000 missing persons records were filed. Of those, more than 480,000 were cleared, and 40% of those missing are people of color. If you have any information about Daniel Robinson, you can reach out and remain anonymous if you'd like. Call or text 844-602-0660 with your tip. To help with donations or to volunteer for searches, visit the website at pleasehelpfinddaniel.com. You can contact the Buckeye Police Department with a tip by calling 623-349-6411. All of this info is also available in the show notes. Spread the word. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is research written and hosted by me. It's edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected Podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.